RTE Podcasts present the RTE Players Complete Production of Ulysses by James Joyce, recorded in 1982. Episode 9, Scylla and Charybdis. 2 p.m., 16th of June 1904, the National Library, Kildare Street. Urbane, to comfort them, the Quaker librarian purred. And we have, have we not, those priceless pages of Wilhelm Meister, a great poet on a great brother poet, a hesitating soul taking arms against a sea of troubles, torn by conflicting doubts, as one sees in real life. He came a step, a syncopace, forward on neat's leather, creaking, and a step backward, a syncopace, on the solemn floor. A noiseless attendant, setting open the door but slightly, made him a noiseless beck. Director, said he, creaking to go, albeit lingering. The beautiful, ineffectual dreamer who comes to grief against hard facts. One always feels that Goethe's judgments are so true. True in the larger analysis. Twy creakingly, analysis, he corantoed off. Bald, most zealous by the door, he gave his large ear all to the attendant's words, heard them, and was gone. Two left. Monsieur de la Palice, Stephen sneered, was alive fifteen minutes before his death. Have you found those six brave medicals? John Eglinton asked with elder's gall. To write Paradise Lost at your dictation? The sorrows of Satan, he calls it. Smile. Smile, Cranley's smile. First he tickled her, then he patted her, then he passed the female catheter. For he was a medical, jolly old medic. I feel you would need one more for Hamlet's. Seven is dear to the mystic mind. The shining seven, W.B. calls them. Glitter-eyed, his rufous skull close to his green-capped desk lamp, sought the face, bearded amid dark greener shadow, an olive, holy-eyed. <laughs> he laughed low, a sizer's laugh of Trinity, unanswered. Orchestral Satan, weeping many a rude, tears such as angels weep, Ed Eli Avea del Cool Fato Trombetta. He holds my follies hostage. Cranley's eleven true Wicklow men to free their sireland. Gap-toothed Kathleen, her four beautiful green fields, the stranger in her house. And one more to hail him. Ave, Rabbi! The Tinnahili twelve. In the shadow of the glen he cooees for them. My soul's youth I gave him night by night. Godspeed. Good hunting. Mulligan has my telegram. Folly, persist. Our young Irish bards... John Eglinton censured. ...have yet to create a figure which the world will set beside Saxon Shakespeare's Hamlet, though I admire him, as old Ben did on this side, idolatry. All these questions are purely academic. Russell oracled out of his shadow. I mean, whether Hamlet is Shakespeare or James I or Essex... Clergyman's discussions of the historicity of Jesus. Art has to reveal to us ideas, formless spiritual essences. The supreme question about a work of art is, out of how deep a life does it spring? The painting of Gustave Moreau is the painting of ideas. The deepest poetry of Shelley, the words of Hamlet, bring our mind into contact with the eternal wisdom, Plato's world of ideas. 
All the rest is the speculation of schoolboys for schoolboys. A.E. has been telling some Yankee interviewer, Well, tarnation, strike me. The schoolmen were schoolboys first, Stephen said super politely. Aristotle was once Plato's schoolboy. And has remained so, one should hope, John Eglinton sedately said. One can see him, a model schoolboy with his diploma under his arm. He laughed again at the now smiling bearded face. Formless, spiritual. Father, word and holy breath. All Father, the heavenly man. Jesus Christos, magician of the beautiful. The Logos who suffers in us at every moment. This verily is that. I am the fire upon the altar. I am the sacrificial butter. Dunlop, judge, the noblest Roman of them all. A.E. Arval, the name ineffable, in heaven height. K.H., their master, whose identity is no secret to adepts. Brothers of the Great White Lodge, always watching to see if they can help. The Christ with the bride's sister, moisture of light, born of an ensouled virgin. Repentant Sophia departed to the plain of Budi. The life esoteric is not for ordinary person. O.P. must work off bad karma first. Mrs. Cooper Oakley once glimpsed our very illustrious sister H.P.B.'s elemental. Oh, fie, out on we teufel. You noughtn't to look, missus, so you noughtn't when a lady's a-showing of her elemental. Mr. Best entered, tall, young, mild, light. He bore in his hand with grace a notebook, new, large, clean, bright. That model schoolboy, Stephen said, would find Hamlet's musings about the afterlife of his princely soul, the improbable, insignificant and undramatic monologue as shallow as Plato's. John Eglinton, frowning, said, waxing wroth. Upon my word, it makes my blood boil to hear anyone compare Aristotle with Plato. Which of the two, Stephen asked, would have banished me from his commonwealth? Unsheathe your dagger definitions. Horseness is the whatness of all horse. Streams of tendency and eons they worship. God, noise in the street, very peripatetic. Space, what you damn well have to see. Through spaces smaller than red globules of man's blood, they creepy-crawl after Blake's buttocks into eternity of which this vegetable world is but a shadow. Hold to the now, the here, through which all future plunges to the past. Mr. Best came forward, amiable towards his colleague. Haynes is gone, he said. Is he? I was showing him Jabal Veal's book. He's quite enthusiastic, don't you know, about Hyde's Log Songs of Connacht. I couldn't bring him in to hear the discussion. He's gone to Gills to buy it. Bound thee forth my booklet quick to greet the callous public. Writ I weaned was not my wish in lean, unlovely English. The peat smoke is going to his head. John Eglinton opined. We feel in England. Penitent thief, gone. I smoked his backy, green twinkling stone. An emerald set in the ring of the sea. People do not know how dangerous love songs can be. The auric egg of Russell warned occultly. The movements which work revolutions in the world are born out of the dreams and visions in a peasant's heart on the hillside. For them, the earth is not an exploitable ground, but the living mother. The rarefied air of the academy and the arena produce the six-shilling novel, the musical song. France produces the finest flower of corruption in Mallarmé, but the desirable life is revealed only to the poor of heart, the life of Homer's creations. From these words, Mr. Best turned an unoffending face to Stephen. Malarmé, don't you know? He said. 
has written those wonderful prose poems Stephen McKenna used to read me in Paris. The one about Hamlet, he says, Il se promène, lisant au livre de lui-même. Don't you know? Reading the book of himself. He describes Hamlet given in a French town. Don't you know, a provincial town. They advertised it. His free hand graciously wrote tiny signs in air. Hamlet, ou la distrait, pièce de Shakespeare. He repeated to John Eglinton's new-gathered frown. Pièce de Shakespeare, don't you know? It's so French, the French point of view. Hamlet, ou... The absent-minded beggar. Stephen ended. <laughs> John Eglinton laughed. Yes, I suppose it would be. He said... Excellent people, no doubt, but distressingly short-sighted in some matters. Sumptuous and stagnant exaggeration of murder. A death's man of the soul, Robert Green called him, Stephen said. Not for nothing was he a butcher's son, wielding the sledded pole-axe and spitting in his palm. Nine lives are taken off for his father's one, our father who art in purgatory. Cocky hamlets don't hesitate to shoot. The blood-bolted shambles in Act Five is a forecast of the concentration camp sung by Mr. Swinburne. Grandly. I, his mute orderly, following battles from afar. Whelps and dams of murderous foes whom none but we had spared. Between the Saxon smile and Yankee yop, the devil in the deep sea. You will have it that Hamlet is a ghost story, John Eglinton said for Mr. Best's behoof. Like the fat boy in Pickwick, he wants to make our flesh creep. List, list, oh list. My flesh hears him. Creeping hears, if thou didst ever. What is a ghost? Stephen said with tingling energy. One who has faded into impalpability through death, through absence, through change of manners. Elizabethan London lay as far from Stratford as corrupt Paris lies from virgin Dublin. Who is the ghost from Limbo Patrum, returning to the world that has forgotten him? Who is King Hamlet? John Eglinton shifted his spare body, leaning back to judge. Lifted. It is this hour of a day in mid-June, Stephen said, begging with a swift glance their hearing. The flag is up on the playhouse by the bankside. The bare Sackerson growls in the pit near it, Paris Garden. Canvas climbers who sailed with Drake chew their sausages among the groundlings. Local colour, work in all you know, make them accomplices. Shakespeare has left the Huguenot's house in Silver Street and walks by the swan mews along the river bank. But he does not stay to feed the pen chivying her game of signets towards the rushes. The Swan of Avon has other thoughts. Composition of place. Ignatius Loyola make haste to help me. The play begins. A player comes on under the shadow, made up in the cast-off mail of a court buck. A well-set man with a bass voice. It is the ghost, the king, a king and no king. And the player is Shakespeare who has studied Hamlet all the years of his life, which were not vanity, in order to play the part of the spectre. He speaks the words to Burbage, the young player who stands before him beyond the rack of searcloth, calling him by a name. Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit, bidding him list. To a son he speaks, the son of his soul, the prince, young Hamlet, and to the son of his body, Hamnet Shakespeare, who has died in Stratford that his namesake may live forever. Is it possible that the player Shakespeare, a ghost by absence, and in the vesture of buried Denmark, a ghost by death, speaking his own words to his own son's name, had Hamlet Shakespeare lived, he would have been Prince Hamlet's twin. Is it possible, I want to know, or probable, 
that he did not draw or foresee the logical conclusion of those premises. You are the dispossessed son. I am the murdered father. Your mother is the guilty queen. And Shakespeare born Hathaway. But this prying into the family life of a great man... Russell began impatiently. Art thou there, True Penny? Interesting only to the parish clerk. I mean, we have the plays. I mean, when we read the poetry of King Lear, what is it to us how the poet lived? As for living, our servants can do that for us, Villiers de Lille has said. Peeping and prying into green-room gossip of the day, the poet's drinking, the poet's debts, we have King Lear, and it is immortal. Mr. Best's face appealed to agreed. Flow over them with your waves and with your waters, Mananan, Mananan, MacLear. How now, Sirrah? That pound he lent you when you were hungry. Marry, I wanted it. Take thou this noble. Go to. You spent most of it in Georgina Johnson's bed, a clergyman's daughter. I can bite of inwit. Do you intend to pay it back? Oh, yes. When? Now? Well, no. When, then? I paid my way. I paid my way. Steady on. He's from beyond Boyne Water, the northeast corner. You owe it. Wait. Five months. Molecules all change. I am other eye now. Other eye got pound. Buzz, buzz. But I, entelechy, form of forms, am I by memory because under ever-changing forms. I that sinned and prayed and fasted. A child con me saved from pandies. I, I and I, I, A-E, I owe you. Do you mean to fly in the face of the tradition of three centuries? John Eglinton's carping voice asked. Her ghost, at least, has been laid forever. She died, for literature at least, before she was born. She died, Stephen retorted, 67 years after she was born. She saw him into and out of the world. She took his first embraces. She bore his children, and she laid pennies on his eyes to keep his eyelids closed when he lay on his deathbed. Mother's deathbed. Candle. The sheeted mirror. Who brought me into this world lies there, bronze-lidded, under a few cheap flowers. Liliata rutilantium. I wept alone. John Eglinton looked in the tangled glowworm of his lamp. The world believes that Shakespeare made a mistake, he said, and got out of it as quickly and as best he could. Bosh, he even said rudely. A man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Portals of discovery opened to let in the Quaker librarian, soft creek-footed, bald-eared and assiduous. A shrew, John Eglinton said shrewdly, is not a useful portal of discovery, one should imagine. What useful discovery did Socrates learn from Xanthippe? Dialectic, Stephen answered. And from his mother, how to bring thoughts into the world. What he learned from his other wife, Myrto, absit nomen, Socratididians, epipsychidian, no man, not a woman, will ever know. But neither the midwife's law nor the court lectures saved him from the archons of Sinn Féin and their noggin of hemlock. But Anne Hathaway... Mr. Best's quiet voice said forgetfully. Yes, we seem to be forgetting her as Shakespeare himself forgot her. His look went from Bruder's beard to Carper's skull to remind, to chide them not unkindly, then to the bald pink Lollard costard, guiltless though maligned. He had a good groat's worth of wit, Stephen said, and no truant memory. He carried a memory in his wallet as he trudged to Romeville, whistling The Girl I Left Behind Me. 
If the earthquake did not time it, we should know where to place poor Watt, sitting in his form, the cry of hounds, the studded bridle, and her blue windows. That memory, Venus and Adonis, lay in the bedchamber of every light of love in London. Is Catherine the Shrew ill-favoured? Hortensio calls her young and beautiful. Do you think the writer of Antony and Cleopatra, a passionate pilgrim, had his eyes in the back of his head that he chose the ugliest doxy in all Warwickshire to lie with all? Good, he left her and gained the world of men, but his boy women are the women of a boy. Their life, thought, speech are lent them by males. He chose badly? He was chosen, it seems to me. If others have their will, Anne hath a way. By cock she was to blame. She put the comether on him, sweet and twenty-six. The grey-eyed goddess who bends over the boy Adonis, stooping to conquer as prologue to the swelling act, is a bold-faced Stratford wench who tumbles in a cornfield a lover younger than herself. And my turn. When? Come. Ryefield, Mr. Best said brightly, gladly, raising his new book, gladly, brightly. He murmured then with blonde delight for all. Between the acres of the rye, these pretty country folk would lie. Paris, the well-pleased pleaser. A tall figure in bearded homespun rose from shadow and unveiled its cooperative watch. I am afraid I am due at the homestead. Whither away? Exploitable ground? Are you going? John Eglinton's active eyebrows asked. Shall we see you at Moore's tonight? Piper is coming. Piper? Mr. Best piped. Is Piper back? Peter Piper pecked a peck of pick of peck of pickled pepper. I don't know if I can. Thursday, we have our meeting. If I can get away in time. Yogi bogey box in Dawson Chambers. Isis unveiled. Their pally book we tried to pawn. Cross-legged under an umbral umbershoot he thrones an Aztec logos, functioning on astral levels, their oversoul, Mahamahatma. The faithful hermetists await the light, ripe for cellarship, ring round about him. Louis H. Victory, T. Caulfield Irwin. Lotus ladies tend them at the eyes, their pineal glands aglow. Filled with his god he thrones, bud under plantain, gulfer of souls, engulfer, he souls, she souls, shoals of souls, engulfed with wailing creek cries, world whirling they bewail. In quintessential triviality, for years in this flesh case, a she soul dwelt. They say we're to have a literary surprise, the Quaker librarian said, friendly and earnest. Mr. Russell, rumour has it, is gathering together a sheaf of our younger poet's verses. We are all looking forward anxiously. Anxiously, he glanced in the cone of lamplight, where three faces lighted shone. See this. Remember. Stephen looked down on a wide, headless corbine, hung on his ashplant handle over his knee. My cask and sword. Touch lightly with two index fingers. Aristotle's experiment. One or two. Necessity is that in virtue of which it is impossible that one can be otherwise. Argyle, one hat is one hat. Listen. Young Colum and Starkey. George Roberts is doing the commercial part. Longworth will give it a good puff in the express. Oh, will he? I liked Colum's drover. Yes, I think he has that queer thing, genius. Do you think he has genius, really? Yeats admired his line, as in wild earth a Grecian vase. Did he? I hope you'll be able to come tonight. Maliki Mulligan is coming, too. Moore asked him to bring Haynes. Did you hear Miss Mitchell's joke about Moore and Martin? That Moore is Martin's wild oats. 
awfully clever, isn't it? They remind one of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. Our national epic is yet to be written, Dr. Sigerson says. Moore is the man for it. A knight of the rueful countenance here in Dublin. With a saffron kilt? O'Neill Russell? Oh, yes, he must speak the grand old tongue. And his dulcinea? James Stevens is doing some clever sketches. We are becoming important, it seems. Cordelia. Cordolio. Lear's loneliest daughter. Nookshotten. Now your best French polish. Thank you very much, Mr. Russell, Stephen said, rising. If you will be so kind as to give the letter to Mr. Norman. Oh, yes, if he considers it important, it will go in. We have so much correspondence. I understand. Stephen said. Thanks. Good Ilju, the pig's paper. Bullock befriending. Singh has promised me an article for Dana, too. Are we going to be read? I feel we are. The Gaelic League wants something in Irish. I hope you will come round tonight. Bring Starkey. Stephen sat down. The Quaker librarian came from the leave-takers. Blushing, his mask said, Mr. Dedalus, your views are most illuminating. He creaked to and fro, tiptoeing up nearer heaven by the attitude of a Chopin, and, covered by the noise of outgoing, said, low, Is it your view, then, that she was not faithful to the poet? Alarmed face asks me. Why did he come? Courtesy or an inward light? Where there is a reconciliation, Stephen said, there must have been first a sundering. Yes. Christ fox in leather trues, hiding. A runaway in blighted tree forks from hue and cry, knowing no vixen, walking lonely in the chase. Women he won to him, tender people, a whore of Babylon, ladies of justices, bully tapsters, wives, fox and geese. And in new place, a slack dishonoured body that once was comely, once as sweet as fresh as cinnamon. Now her leaves falling all bare, frighted of the narrow grave and unforgiven. Yes, so you think... The door closed behind the outgoer. Rest suddenly possessed the discreet vaulted cell. Rest of warm and brooding air. A vestal's lamp. Here he ponders things that were not. What Caesar would have lived to do had he believed the soothsayer. What might have been... Possibilities of the possible as possible, things not known. What name Achilles bore when he lived among women? Coffined thoughts around me in mummy cases, embalmed in spice of words. Thoth, god of libraries, a bird god, moony crowned. And I heard the voice of that Egyptian high priest in painted chambers loaded with tile books. They are still once quick in the brains of men, still, but an itch of death is in them, to tell me in my ear a maudlin tale, urge me to wreak their will. Certainly, John Eglinton mused, of all great men he is the most enigmatic. We know nothing but that he lived and suffered, not even so much. Others abide our question, a shadow hangs over all the rest. But Hamlet is so personal, isn't it? Mr. Best pleaded. I mean, a kind of private paper, don't you know, of his private life. I mean, I don't care a button, don't you know, who is killed or who is guilty. He rested an innocent book on the edge of the desk, smiling his defiance. His private papers in the original. Ta on board errant here. Tom in Mahogarth. Put Burla on it, little John. Quoth, little John Eglinton. I was prepared for paradoxes from what Malachi Mulligan told us, but I may as well warn you that if you want to shake my belief that Shakespeare is Hamlet... You have a stern task before you. Bear with me, 
Stephen withstood the bane of miscreant eyes, glinting stern under wrinkled brows. A basilisk. E quando vede l'uomo la tosca. Messo Brunetto, I thank thee for the word. As we, our mother Dana, weave and unweave our bodies, Stephen said, from day to day, their molecules shuttled to and fro, so does the artist weave and unweave his image. And as the mole on my right breast is where it was when I was born, though all my body has been woven of new stuff time after time, so through the ghost of the unquiet father, the image of the unliving son looks forth. In the intense instant of imagination, when the mind, Shelley says, is a fading coal, that which I was is that which I am, and that which in possibility I may come to be. So in the future, the sister of the past, I may see myself as I sit here now, but by reflection from that which then I shall be. Drummond of Hawthornden helped you at that style. Yes, Mr. Best said, youngly. I feel Hamlet quite young. The bitterness might be from the father, but the passages with Ophelia are surely from the son. Has the wrong sow by the lug. He is in my father, I am in his son. <laughs> that mole is the last to go, Stephen said, laughing. John Eglinton made a nothing pleasing mow. If that were the birthmark of genius, he said, genius would be a drug in the market. The plays of Shakespeare's later years, which Renan admired so much, breathe another spirit. The spirit of reconciliation, the Quaker librarian breathed. There can be no reconciliation, Stephen said, if there has not been a sundering. Said that. If you want to know what are the events which cast their shadow over the hell of time of King Lear, Othello, Hamlet, Troilus and Cressida, look to see when and how the shadow lifts. What softens the heart of a man, shipwrecked in storms dire, tried like another Ulysses, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, head, red cone-capped, buffeted, brine-blinded? A child, a girl placed in his arms, Marina. The leaning of sophists towards the bypaths of Apocrypha is a constant quantity, John Eglinton detected. The high roads are dreary, but they lead to the town. Good bacon gone musty. Shakespeare bacons wild oats. Cipher jugglers going the high roads. Seekers on the great quest. What town, good masters? Mumden names. A.E. Eon. McGee. John Eglinton. East of the sun, west of the moon. Tiernanog. Booted the twain and staved. How many miles to Dublin? Three score and ten, sir. Will we be there by candlelight? Mr. Brandes accepts it, Stephen said, as the first play of the closing period. Does he? What does Mr. Sidney Lee, or Mr. Simon Lazarus, as some aver his name is, say of it? Marina, Stephen said, a child of storm. Miranda, a wonder. Perdita, that which was lost. What was lost is given back to him, his daughter's child. My dearest wife, Pericles says, was like this maid. Will any man love the daughter if he has not loved the mother? The art of being a grandfather. Mr. Best can murmur. L'art des Trigons. His own image to a man with that queer thing, genius, is the standard of all experience, material and moral. Such an appeal will touch him. The images of other males of his blood will repel him. He will see in them grotesque attempts of nature to foretell or repeat himself. The benign forehead of the Quaker librarian enkindled Rosalie with hope. I hope Mr. Dedalus will work out his theory for the enlightenment of the public. And we ought to mention another Irish commentator, Mr. George Bernard Shaw. Nor should we forget Mr. Frank Harris. His articles on Shakespeare and the Saturday Review were surely brilliant. 
Oddly enough, he too draws for us an unhappy relation with the dark lady of the sonnets. The favoured rival is William Herbert out of Pembroke. I own that if the poet must be rejected, such a rejection would seem more in harmony with, what shall I say, our notions of what ought not to have been. Felicitously he ceased and held a meek head among them, orc's egg, prize of their fray. He thou's and these her with grave husband words. Dost love, Miriam, dost love thy man? That may be too, Stephen said. There is a saying of Goethe's which Mr. McGee likes to quote. Beware of what you wish for in youth, because you will get it in middle life. Why does he send to one who is a buona roba, a bay where all men ride, a maid of honour with a scandalous girlhood, a lordling to woo for him? He was himself a lord of language, and had made himself a cloistral gentleman, and had written Romeo and Juliet. Why? Belief in himself has been untimely killed. He was overborne in a cornfield first, rye field, I should say, and he will never be a victor in his own eyes after, nor play victoriously the game of laugh and lie down. Assumed Don Giovannism will not save him. No later undoing will undo the first undoing. The tusk of the boar has wounded him there where love lies a-bleeding. If the shrew is worsted, yet there remains to her a woman's invisible weapon. There is, I feel in the words, some goad of the flesh driving him into a new passion, a darker shadow of the first, darkening even his own understanding of himself. A like fate awaits him, and the two rages commingle in a whirlpool. They list, and in the porches of their ears I pour. The soul has been before stricken mortally, a poison poured in the porch of a sleeping ear. But those who are done to death in sleep cannot know the manner of their quell, unless their creator endow their souls with that knowledge in the life to come. The poisoning and the beast with two bats that urged it, King Hamlet's ghost could not know of, were he not endowed with knowledge by his creator. That is why the speech, his lean, unlovely English, is always turned elsewhere, backward, ravisher and ravished, what he would but would not, go with him from Lucretia's blue-circled ivory globes to Imogen's breast, bare with its mole sank-spotted. He goes back, weary of the creation he has piled up to hide him from himself, an old dog licking an old sore. But because loss is his gain, he passes on towards eternity in undiminished personality, untaught by the wisdom he has written or by the laws he has revealed. His beaver is up. He is a ghost, a shadow now, the wind by Elsinore's rocks or what you will, the sea's voice, a voice heard only in the heart of him who is the substance of his shadow, the son consubstantial with the father. Amen, responded from the doorway. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Entreact. A ribald face, sullen as a dean's, Buck Mulligan came forwards then, blithe and motley, towards the greeting of their smiles. My telegram... You were speaking of the gaseous vertebrate, if I mistake not, he asked of Stephen. Primrose-vested, he greeted gaily with his doffed Panama as with a bauble. They make him welcome. Was du verlacht wirst du noctinen. Brood of mockers, Photius, Pseudomalachi, Johann Most. He who himself begot, middle of the Holy Ghost, and himself sent himself, Agenbeier, 
between himself and others, who, put upon by his fiends, stripped and whipped, was nailed like bat to barn door, starved on cross tree, who let him bury, stood up, harrowed hell, fared into heaven, and there these nineteen hundred years sitteth on the right hand of his own self, but yet shall come in the latter day to doom the quick and dead, when all the quick shall be dead already. Gloria in excelsis Deo. He lifts hands, veils fall. Oh, flowers, bells with bells with bells acquiring. Yes, indeed, the Quaker librarian said. A most instructive discussion. Mr. Mulligan, I'll be bound, has his theory too of the play and of Shakespeare. All sides of life should be represented. He smiled on all sides equally. Buck Mulligan thought, puzzled. Shakespeare, he said. I seem to know the name. A flying, sunny smile rayed in his loose features. To be sure, he said, remembering brightly. The chap that writes like sing. Mr. Best turned to him. Haynes missed you, he said. Did you meet him? He'll see you after at the DBC. He's gone to Gill's to buy Hyde's Love Songs of Connacht. I came through the museum, Buck Mulligan said. Was he here? The board's fellow countrymen, John Eglinton answered, are rather tired, perhaps, of our brilliancies of theorising. I hear that an actress played Hamlet for the 408th time last night in Dublin, vining hell that the prince was a woman, as no one made him out to be an Irishman. Judge Barton, I believe, is searching for some clues. He swears, his highness, not his lordship, by St. Patrick. The most brilliant of all is that story of Wilde's. Mr. Best said, lifting his brilliant notebook. That portrait of Mr. W.H., where he proves that the sonnets were written by a Willie Hughes, a man all Hughes. For Willie Hughes, is it not? The Quaker librarian asked. Or Huey Wills, Mr. William himself, W.H., who am I? I mean, for Willie Hughes, Mr. Best said, amending his gloss easily. Of course, it's all paradox, don't you know? Hughes and Hughes and Hughes the colour. But it's so typical the way he works it out. The very essence of wild, don't you know? The light touch. His glance touched their faces lightly as he smiled. A blonde, if he... Tame essence of wild. You're darned witty. Three drams of Ishkabai you drank with Dan Deasy's ducats. How much did I spend? Oh, a few shillings. For a plump of pressmen, humour wet and dry. Wit? You would give your five wits for youth's proud livery he pranks in. Liniments of gratified desire. There be many more. Take her for me, in pairing time. Jove, a cool, rot time send them. Yea, turtle dove her. Eve, naked, wheat-bellied sin. A snake calls her, fang and kiss. Do you think it is only a paradox, the Quaker librarian was asking. The mocker is never taken seriously when he is most serious. They talked seriously of mocker's seriousness. Buck Mulligan's again heavy face eyed Stephen a while. Then, his head wagging, he came near, drew a folded telegram from his pocket. His mobile lips read, smiling with new delight. Telegram! He said. Wonderful inspiration. Telegram! A papal bull! He sat on a corner of the unlit desk, reading aloud joyfully. The sentimentalist is he who would enjoy without incurring the immense debtorship for a thing done. Signed, Dedalus. Where did you launch it from? The Kipps? Oh, College Green. Have you drunk the four quid? The aunt is going to call on your unsubstantial father. Telegram! Malachy Mulligan, the ship, Lower Abbey Street. Oh, you peerless mama. Oh, you priestified kinshite. Joyfully, he thrust message and envelope into a pocket, but keened in querulous brogue. 
It's what I'm telling you, Mr. Honey. It's queer and sick we were, Haynes and myself. The time himself brought us in. "'Twas murmur we did for a gallus potion "'would rouse a friar, I'm thinking, "'and he limp with leching, "'and we one hour and two hours "'and three hours in conneries "'sitting civil waiting for pints apiece.' "'He wailed. "'And we to be there, Mavrone, "'and you to be unbeknownst "'sending us your conglomerations "'the way we to have our tongues out a yard long "'like the drouthy clerics do be fainting for a pusful.' <laughs> "'Stephen laughed.' Quickly, warningfully, Buck Mulligan bent down. The tramper Singh is looking for you, he said, to murder you. He heard you pissed on his whole door in Glasthul. He's out in Pampooties to murder you. Me? Stephen exclaimed. That was your contribution to literature. Buck Mulligan gleefully bent back, <laughs> laughing to the dark, <laughs> eavesdropping ceiling. Murder you! He laughed. Harsh gargoyle face that warred against me over our mess of hash of lights and rue San Andre des Arts. In words of words for words, palabras. Ushin with Patrick, phone man he met in Clamart Woods, brandishing a wine bottle. Say, Vendredi Saint, murdering Irish. His image wandering he met. I mine. I met a fool in the forest. Mr. Lister. An attendant said from the door ajar. In which everyone can find his own. So Mr. Justice Madden, in his diary of Master William Silence, has found the hunting terms. Yes, what is it? There is a gentleman here, sir. The attendant said, coming forward and offering a card. From the free man. He wants to see the files of the Kilkenny people for last year. Certainly, uh, certainly, certainly. And um, it's the gentleman He that... took the eager card, glanced, not saw, laid down, unglanced, looked, asked, creaked, asked. Is he, uh, oh, there? Brisk in a galliard, he was off and out. In the daylit corridor, he talked with voluble pains of zeal, in duty bound, most fair, most kind, most honest, broad brim. This gentleman, Freeman's Journal? Kilkenny people, to be sure. And good day, sir. Kilkenny, we have certainly. A patient silhouette waited, listening. All the leading provincial Northern Greek Cork Examiner, Ennis Corthy Guardian, in 1903. Would you please, Evans, conduct this gentleman, if you just follow the attempt. Please allow me this way, please, sir. Voluble, dutiful, he led the way to all the provincial papers, a bowing, dark figure following his hasty heels. The door closed. The sheeny! Buck Mulligan cried. He jumped up and snatched the card. What's his name? Ikey Moses Bloom. He rattled on. Jehovah, collector of prepuces, is no more. I found him over in the museum when I went to hail the foam-born Aphrodite, the Greek mouth that has never been twisted in prayer. Every day we must do homage to her. Life of life, thy lips enkindle. Suddenly he turned to Stephen. He knows you. He knows your old fellow. Oh, I fear me, he is Greeker than the Greeks. His pale Galilean eyes were upon her mesial groove. Venus Calipige. Oh, the thunder of those loins. The god pursuing the maiden hid. We want to hear more. John Eglinton decided with Mr. Best's approval. We begin to be interested in Mrs. S., well, till now we had thought of her, if at all, as a patient Griselda, a Penelope stay-at-home. And Tisthenes, pupil of Gorgias, Stephen said, took the palm of beauty from curious Menelaus Bluddam Argive Helen, the wooden mare of Troy in whom a score of heroes slept, and handed it to poor Penelope. Twenty years he lived in London, and during part of that time he drew a salary equal to that of the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. His life was rich... His art, more than the art of feudalism, as Walt Whitman called it, is the art 
of surfeit. Hot herring pies, green mugs of sack, honey sauces, sugar of roses, marchpane, gooseberry pigeons, ringo candies. So Walter Raleigh, when they arrested him, had half a million francs on his back, including a pair of fancy stays. The Gombeen woman, Eliza Tudor, had under linen enough to vie with her of Sheba. Twenty years he dallied there between conjugal love and its chaste delights and scortatory love and its foul pleasures. You know Manningham's story of the burgher's wife who bade Dick Burbage to her bed after she'd seen him in Richard III and how Shakespeare, overhearing, without more ado about nothing, took the cow by the horns and, when Burbage came knocking at the gate, answered from the capon's blankets, William the Conqueror came before Richard III. <laughs> and the gay lacken Mistress Fitton, mountain cry O, and his dainty bird's knees Lady Penelope Rich, a clean, quality woman is suited for a player. And the punks of the bankside a penny a time. Que la reine. Encore vingt sous. Nous ferons de petites cochonneries. Minette, tu veux? The height of fine society. And Sir William Davenant of Oxford's mother with her cup of canary for every cock canary. Buck Mulligan, his pious eyes upturned, prayed. Blessed Margaret Mary, any cock. And Harry of six wives' daughter and other lady friends from neighbour seats, as Lawn Tennyson, gentleman poet, sings. But all those twenty years, what do you suppose poor Penelope in Stratford was doing behind the diamond panes? Do and do, thing done. In a rosary of fetter lane of Gerard Herbalist he walks, great auburn. An azured harebell like her veins. Lids of Juno's eyes, violets. He walks. One life is all. One body. Do, but do. Afar in a reek of lust and squalor, hands are laid on whiteness. Buck Mulligan rapped John Eglinton's desk sharply. Whom do you suspect? He challenged. Say that he is the spurned lover in the sonnets. Once spurned, twice spurned. But the court wanton spurned him for a lord, his dear, my love. Love that dare not speak its name. As an Englishman, you mean... Uh, John Sturdy Eglinton put in. He loved the Lord. Old wall where sudden lizards flash. At Charrington I watched them. It seems so, Stephen said. When he wants to do for him and for all other and singular honoured wombs the holy office an ostler does for the stallion. Maybe like Socrates, he had a midwife to mother as he had a shrew to wife. But she, the jiglow wanton, did not break a bed vow. Two deeds are rank in that ghost's mind... A broken vow, and the dull-brained yokel on whom her favour has declined, deceased husband's brother. Sweet Anne, I take it, was hot in the blood. Once a war, twice a war. Stephen turned boldly in his chair. The burden of proof is with you, not with me, he said, frowning. If you deny that in the fifth scene of Hamlet he has branded her with infamy, tell me why there is no mention of her during the thirty-four years between the day she married him and the day she buried him. All those women saw their men down and under... Mary, her good man John, Anne, her poor dear Willen, when he went and died on her, raging that he was the first to go, Joan, her four brothers, Judith, her husband, and all her sons, Susan, her husband too, while Susan's daughter Elizabeth, to use granddaddy's words, wed her second, having killed her first. Oh yes, mention there is. In the years when he was living richly in royal London, to pay a debt she had to borrow forty shillings from her father's shepherd. Explain you then. Explain the swan song, too, wherein he has commended her to posterity. He faced their silence. To whom, thus, Eglinton... You mean the will. That has been explained, I believe, by jurists. 
She was entitled to her widow's dower at common law. His legal knowledge was great, our judges tell us. Him Satan fleers. Mock her. And therefore he left out her name from the first draft, but he did not leave out the presents for his granddaughter, for his daughters, for his sister, for his old cronies in Stratford and in London. And therefore, when he was urged, as I believe, to name her, he left her his second best bed. Punked. Left her his second best, best a bed, second best, left a bed. Whoa. Pretty country folk had few chattels then. John Eglinton observed. As they have still, if our peasant plays are true to type. He was a rich country gentleman, Stephen said, with a coat of arms and landed estate at Stratford, and a house in Ireland Yard, a capitalist shareholder, a bill promoter, a tithe farmer. Why did he not leave her his best bed if he wished her to snore away the rest of her nights in peace? It is clear that there were two beds, a best and a second best, Mr. Second Best Best said, finally. Separatio a mensa et a thalamo. Better, Buck Mulligan, and was smiled on. Antiquity mentions famous beds. Second, Eglinton puckered, bed smiling. Let me think. Antiquity mentions that stagy right school urchin and bald heathen sage, Stephen said, who, when dying in exile, frees and endows his slaves, pays tribute to his elders, wills to be laid in earth near the bones of his dead wife, and bids his friends be kind to an old mistress. Don't forget Nell Gwyn Herpolis, and let her live in his villa. But do you mean he died so? Mr. Best asked with slight concern. I mean... He died dead drunk, Buck Mulligan capped. A quart of ale is a dish for a king. Oh, I must tell you what Dowden said. What? what? Asked Best Eglinton. William Shakespeare and Company Limited. The People's William. For terms apply, E. Dowden, Highfield House. Lovely, Buck Mulligan suspired amorously. I asked him what he thought of the charge of pederasty brought against the bard. He lifted his hands and said, All we can say is that life ran very high in those days. Lovely. Catamite. The sense of beauty leads us astray, said... Beautiful in sadness, best to ugling Eglinton. Steadfast John replied, severe. The doctor can tell us what those words mean. You cannot eat your cake and have it. Sayest thou so? Will they wrest from us from me the palm of beauty? And the sense of property, Stephen said. He drew Shylock out of his own long pocket. The son of a malt jobber and money lender, he was himself a corn jobber and money lender, with ten tods of corn hoarded in the famine riots. His borrowers are no doubt those diverse of worship mentioned by Chettle Falstaff, who reported his uprightness of dealing. He sued a fellow player for the price of a few bags of malt and exacted his pound of flesh in interest for every money lent. How else could Aubrey's ostler and call boy get rich quick? All events brought grist to his mill. Shylock chimes with the Jew-baiting that followed the hanging and quartering of the Queen's leech Lopez, his Jew's heart being plucked forth while the Sheeny was yet alive. Hamlet and Macbeth with the coming to the throne of a Scotch philosophaster with a turn for witch-roasting. The lost armada is his jeer in love's labour lost. His pageants, the histories, sail full-bellied on a tide of mafficking enthusiasm. Warwickshire Jesuits are tried, and we have a porter's theory of equivocation. The sea venture comes home from Bermudas, and the play Renan admired is written with Patsy Caliban, our American cousin. The sugared sonnets follow Sydney's. As for Faye Elizabeth, otherwise Carroty Bess, the gross virgin who inspired the merry wives of Windsor, let some mine hair from Albany grope his life long for deep-hid meanings in the depth of the buck-basket. I think you're getting on very nicely. 
just mix up a mixture of theological philological. Mingo, minxy, mictum, mingre. Prove that he was a Jew. John Eglinton dared expectantly. Your dean of studies holds that he was a holy Roman. So flaminandus sum. He was made in Germany, Stephen replied, as the champion French polisher of Italian scandals. A myriad-minded man, Mr. Best reminded. Coleridge called him myriad-minded. Amplius. Injote etate humana, hoc est maxime necessarium ut sit amicitia inter multos. St. Thomas, Stephen began. Ora pro nobis. Monk Mulligan groaned, sinking to a chair. There he keened a wailing rune. Plog Mahon, a Kushla Macree, it's destroyed we are from this day, it's destroyed we are surely. All smiled their smiles. St. Thomas, Stephen smiling said, whose gore bellied works I enjoy reading in the original, writing of incest from a standpoint different from that of the new Viennese school Mr. McGee spoke of, likens it in his wise and curious way to an avarice of the emotions. He means that the love so given to one near in blood is covetously withheld from some stranger who, it may be, hungers for it. Jews, whom Christians tax with avarice, are of all races the most given to intermarriage. Accusations are made in anger. The Christian laws which built up the hordes of the Jews, for whom, as for the Lollards, storm was shelter, bound their affections too with hoops of steel. <laughs> Whether these be sins or virtues, old Nobadaddy will tell us at doomsday leet. But a man who holds so tightly to what he calls his rights over what he calls his debts will hold tightly also to what he calls his rights over her whom he calls his wife. No sir smile neighbour shall covet his ox or his wife or his man-servant or his maid-servant or his jackass. Or his Jenny ass. Buck Mulligan antiphoned. Gentle will has been roughly handled. Gentle, Mr. Best said gently. Which will? Gagged sweetly, Buck Mulligan. We are getting mixed. The will to live. John Eglinton philosophised. For poor Anne Will's widow is the will to die. Requiescat. Stephen prayed. What of all the will to do? It has vanished long ago. She lies laid out in stark stiffness in that second best bed. The Moblet Queen. Even though you prove that a bed in those days was as rare as a motor car is now, and that its carvings were the wonder of seven parishes. In old age, she takes up with gospelers. One stayed at New Place and drank a quart of sack the town paid for, but in which bed he slept it skills not to ask. And heard she had a soul. She read, or had read to her, his chapbooks, preferring them to the merry wives, and loosing her nightly waters on the Jordan, she thought over hooks and eyes for believers' breeches, and the most spiritual snuff-box to make the most devout souls sneeze. Venus had twisted her lips in prayer. Agonbite of inwit, remorse of conscience. It is an age of exhausted whoredom groping for its god. History shows that to be true. Inquit, Eglantonus, chronologos. The ages succeed one another, but we have it on high authority that a man's worst enemies shall be those of his own house and family. I feel that Russell is right. What do we care for his wife and father? I should say that only family poets have family lives. Falstaff was not a family man. I feel that the fat knight is his supreme creation. Lean, he lay back. Shy, deny thy kindred, the uncle good. Shy, supping with the godless, he sneaks the cup. A sire in Altonian Antrim bad at him. Visits him here on quarter days. Mr. McGee, sir, there's a gentleman to see you. Me? 
says he's your father, sir. Give me my words worth. Enter McGee Moore Matthew, a rugged, rough, rug-headed kern, in strossers with a buttoned codpiece, his nether stocks bemired with clawber of ten forests, a wand of wilding in his hand. Your own. He knows your old fellow, the widower. Hurrying to her squalid death lair from gay Paris on the quayside, I touched his hand. The voice, new warmth speaking. Dr. Bob Kenny is attending her. The eyes that wish me well, but do not know me. A father, Stephen said, battling against hopelessness, is a necessary evil. He wrote the play in the months that followed his father's death. If you hold that he, a greying man with two marriageable daughters with 35 years of life, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, with 50 of experience, is the beardless undergraduate from Wittenberg, then you must hold that his 70-year-old mother is the lustful queen. No, the corpse of John Shakespeare does not walk the night. From hour to hour it rots and rots. He rests disarmed of fatherhood, having devised that mystical estate upon his son. Boccaccio's Calandrino was the first and last man who felt himself with child. Fatherhood, in the sense of conscious begetting, is unknown to man. It is a mystical estate, an apostolic succession, from only begetter to only begotten. On that mystery, and not on the Madonna which the cunning Italian intellect flung to the mob of Europe, the Church is founded, and founded irremovably, because founded like the world, macro and microcosm, upon the void upon incertitude, upon unlikelihood. Amor matris, subject of an object of genitive, may be the only true thing in life. Paternity may be a legal fiction. Who is the father of any son that any son should love him or he any son? What the hell are you driving at? I know. Shut up, blast you. I have reasons. Amplius, ad hoc, iterum, postia. Are you condemned to do this? They are sundered by a bodily shame so steadfast that the criminal annals of the world, stained with all other incests and bestialities, hardly record its breach. Sons with mothers, sires with daughters, lesbic sisters, loves that dare not speak their name, nephews with grandmothers, jailbirds with keyholes, queens with prize bulls. The son unborn mars beauty. Born, he brings pain, divides affection, increases care. He is a male. His growth is his father's decline, his youth his father's envy, his friend his father's enemy. In Rue, Monsieur Le Prince, I thought it. What links them in nature? An instant of blind rot. Am I father? If I were, shrunken, uncertain hand. Sibelius the African, subtlest Teresiarch of all the beasts of the field, held that the father was himself his own son. The bulldog of Aquin, with whom no word should be impossible, refutes him. Well, if the father who has not a son be not a father, can the son who has not a father be a son? When Rutland, Bacon, Southampton, Shakespeare, or another poet of the same name in the Comedy of Errors wrote Hamlet, he was not the father of his own son merely, but being no more a son, he was and felt himself the father of all his race, the father of his own grandfather, the father of his unborn grandson, who, by the same token, never was born. For nature, as Mr. McGee understands her, abhors perfection. Eglinton eyes, quick with pleasure, looked up, shy brightly, gladly glancing a merry Puritan through the twisted Eglantine. 
Flatter. Rarely, but flatter. Himself his own father, Son Mulligan told himself. Wait! I am big with child. I have an unborn child in my brain. Pallas Athena, a play. The play's the thing. Let me parturiate. He clasped his paunch brow with both birth-aiding hands. As for his family, Stephen said, his mother's name lives in the forest of Arden. Her death brought from him the scene with Volumnia and Coriolanus. His boy son's death is the death scene of young Arthur in King John. Hamlet, the Black Prince, is Hamnet Shakespeare. Who the girls in the Tempest, in Pericles, in Winter's Tale are, we know. Who Cleopatra, fleshpot of Egypt, and Cressid and Venus are, we may guess. But there is another member of his family who is recorded. The plot thickens, John Eglinton said. The Quaker librarian, quaking, tiptoed in. Quake, his mask, quake. With haste, quick, quack. Door closed. Cell. Day. They list. Three. They. I, you, he, they. Come, miss. Stephen. He had three brothers. Gilbert, Edmund, Richard. Gilbert, in his old age, told some cavaliers he got a pass for nought from Maester Gatherer one time, mass he did, and he seen his broad maester Will, the playwriter up in London, in a wrestling play with a man on his back. The playhouse sausage filled Gilbert's soul. He is nowhere. But an Edmund and a Richard are recorded in the works of Sweet William. McGee, Glenjohn. Names. What's in a name? Best. That is my name, Richard, don't you know? I hope you're going to say a good word for Richard, don't you know, for my sake. <laughs> <laughs> Buck Mulligan, piano diminuendo. Then outspoke medical dick. To his comrade medical Davy Stephen. In his trinity of black wills, the villain Shakebags, Iago, Richard Crookback, Edmund and King Lear, two bear the wicked uncle's names. Nay, that last play was written or being written while his brother Edmund lay dying in Southwark. Best. I hope Edmund is going to catch it. I don't want Richard my name. <laughs> Quicker Lister, a temple. But he that filches from me my good name. Stephen Stringendo. He has hidden his own name, a fair name, William, in the plays. A super here, a clown there, as a painter of old Italy set his face in a dark corner of his canvas. He has revealed it in the sonnets where there is will in overplus. Like John Gaunt, his name is dear to him, as dear as the coat of arms he toadied for. On a bend, sable, a spear, oar, steeled, argent. Honorific abilitude in a tatabus, dearer than his glory of greatest shake scene in the country. What's in a name? That is what we ask ourselves in childhood when we write the name that we are told is ours. A star, a day star, a fire drake rose at his birth. It shone by day in the heavens alone, brighter than Venus in the night, and by night it shone over Delta and Cassiopeia, the recumbent constellation which is the signature of his initial among the stars. His eyes watched it, low-lying on the horizon, eastward of the bear, as he walked by the slumbrous summer fields at midnight, returning from Shottery and from her arms. Both satisfied. I, too. Don't tell them he was nine years old when it was quenched. And from her arms. Wait to be wooed and won. I, me a cock, who will woo you? Read the skies. Auton timor humanus. Bus stephanumenos. Where's your configuration? Stephen, Stephen, cut the bread even. S. D. Sua donna. Ya. Dilui. Gelindo resolvi di non amar S. D. 
What is that, Mr. Dedalus? The Quaker librarian asked. Was it a celestial phenomenon? A star by night, Stephen said. A pillar of the cloud by day. What more is to speak? Stephen looked on his hat, his stick, his boots. Stephanos, my crown, my sword. His boots are spoiling the shape of my feet. By a pair, holes in my socks, handkerchief too. You make good use of the name. John Eglinton allowed. Your own name is strange enough. I suppose it explains your fantastical humour. Me, McGee and Mulligan. Fabulous artificer, the hawk-like man. You flew. Where to? New Haven, Dieppe, steerage passenger. Paris and back. Lapwing. Icarus. Potter. Ite. Sea bedabbled, fallen, weltering. Lapwing you are. Lapwing he. Mr. Best, eager quietly, lifted his book to say... That's very interesting, because that brother motive, don't you know, we find also in the old Irish myths, just what you say, the three-brother Shakespeare. In Grimm, too, don't you know, the fairy tales. The third brother that marries the sleeping beauty and wins the best prize. Best of best, brothers. Good, better, best. The Quaker librarian spring-halted near. I should like to know, he said, which brother you... I understand you to suggest there was misconduct with one of the brothers, but perhaps I am anticipating. He caught himself in the act, looked at all, refrained. An attendant from the doorway called... Mr. Lister, Father Deneen wants... Oh, Father Deneen, directly. Swiftly, rectly, creaking, rectly, rectly, he was rectly gone. John Eglinton touched the foil. Come, he said. Let us hear what you have to say of Richard and Edmund. You kept them for the last, didn't you? In asking you to remember those two noble kinsmen, Uncle Richie and Uncle Edmund, Stephen answered, I feel I'm asking too much, perhaps. A brother is as easily forgotten as an umbrella. Lapwing, where is your brother? Apothecary's Hall, my whetstone. Him, then Cranley, Mulligan, now these. Speech, speech, but act, act speech. They mock to try you. Act, be acted on. Lapwing. I am tired of my voice, the voice of Esau. My kingdom for a drink. On. You will say those names were already in the chronicles from which he took the stuff of his plays. Why did he take them rather than others? Richard, a whore-son crookback, misbegotten, makes love to a widowed Anne, what's in a name, woos and wins her, a whore-son merry widow. Richard the Conqueror, third brother, came after William the Conquered. The other four acts of that play hang limply from that first. Of all his kings, Richard is the only king unshielded by Shakespeare's reverence, the angel of the world. Why is the underplot of King Lear in which Edmund figures, lifted out of Sidney's Arcadia and spatchcocked onto a Celtic legend older than history? That was Will's way, John Eglinton defended. We should not now combine a Norse saga with an excerpt from a novel by George Meredith. Que voulez-vous, Moore would say. He puts Bohemia on the sea coast and makes Ulysses quote Aristotle. Why? Stephen answered himself. Because the theme of the false or the usurping or the adulterous brother or all three in one is to Shakespeare what the poor is not, always with him. The note of banishment, banishment from the heart, banishment from home, sounds uninterruptedly from the two gentlemen of Verona onward till Prospero breaks his staff 
buries it certain fathoms in the earth and drowns his book. It doubles itself in the middle of his life, reflects itself in another, repeats itself. Protasis, epitasis, catastasis, catastrophe. It repeats itself again when he is near the grave, when his married daughter Susan, chip of the old block, is accused of adultery. But it was the original sin that darkened his understanding, weakened his will, and left him in a strong inclination to evil. The words are those of my lord's bishops of Maynooth. An original sin, and like original sin, committed by another in whose sin he too has sinned. It is between the lines of his last written words. It is petrified on his tombstone under which her four bones are not to be laid. Age has not withered it. Beauty and peace have not done it away. It is in infinite variety everywhere in the world he has created. In Much Ado About Nothing, twice in As You Like It, in The Tempest, in Hamlet, in Measure for Measure, and in all the other plays which I have not read. <laughs> he laughed to free his mind from his mind's bondage. Judge Eglinton summed up. The truth is midway, he affirmed. He is the ghost and the prince. He is all in all. He is, Stephen said. The boy of Act One is the mature man of Act Five. All in all. In Cymbeline, in Othello, he is bored and cuckled. He acts and is acted on. Lover of an ideal or a perversion, like Jose, he kills the real Carmen. His unremitting intellect is the horn-mad Iago, ceaselessly willing that the moor in him shall suffer. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Cuck Mulligan clucked lewdly. Oh, word of fear. Dark dome received, reverbed. And what a character is Iago. Undaunted, John Eglinton exclaimed. When all is said, Duma feasts, or is it Duma pair, is right. After God, Shakespeare has created most. Man delights him not, nor woman neither, Stephen said. He returns after a life of absence to that spot of earth where he was born, where he has always been, man and boy, a silent witness. And there, his journey of life ended, he plants his mulberry tree in the earth, then dies. The motion is ended. Grave diggers bury Hamlet, pear and Hamlet feast. A king and a prince at last in death, with incidental music. And what though murdered and betrayed... Bewept by all frail, tender hearts, for Dane or Dubliner, sorrow for the dead is the only husband from whom they refuse to be divorced. If you like the epilogue, look long on it. Prosperous Prospero, the good man rewarded. Lizzie, Grandpa's lump of love, and Nuncle Ritchie, the bad man taken off by poetic justice to the place where the bad niggers go. Strong curtain. He found in the world without as actual what was in his world within as possible. Maeterlinck says, if Socrates leave his house today, he will find the sage seated on his doorstep. If Judas go forth tonight, it is to Judas his steps will tend. Every life is many days, day after day. We walk through ourselves, meeting robbers, ghosts, giants, old men, young men, wives, widows, brothers in love, but always meeting ourselves. The playwright who wrote the folio of this world and wrote it badly. He gave us light first and the sun two days later. The Lord of all things as they are, whom the most Roman of Catholics call Dioboia, hangman God, is doubtless all in all in all of us, ostler and butcher, and would be bored and cuckled too, but that in the economy of heaven, foretold by Hamlet, there are no more marriages, glorified man, an androgynous angel being a wife unto himself. Eureka! Buck Mulligan cried. Eureka! 
Suddenly happied, he jumped up and reached in a stride John Eglinton's desk. May I? He said. The Lord has spoken to Malachy. He began to scribble on a slip of paper. Take some slips from the counter going out. Those who are married. Mr. Best, Deuce Herald, said. All save one shall live. The rest shall keep as they are. <laughs> he laughed, unmarried, at Eglinton Johannes of Arts, a bachelor. Unwed, unfancied, ware of wiles, they finger ponder nightly each his variorum edition of the taming of the shrew. You are a delusion, said Roundy. John Eglinton to Stephen. You have brought us all this way to show us a French triangle. Do you believe your own theory? No, Stephen said promptly. Are you going to write it? Mr. Best asked. You ought to make it a dialogue, don't you know? Like the platonic dialogues Wilde wrote. John Eclecticon doubly smiled. Well, in that case, said, I don't see why you should expect payment for it, since you don't believe it yourself. Dowden believes there is some mystery in Hamlet's. But we'll say no more. Herr Bleitroy, the man Piper met in Berlin who was working up that Rutland theory, believes that the secret is hidden in the Stratford Monument. He is going to visit the present Duke, Piper says, and prove to him that his ancestor wrote the plays. It will come as a surprise to his grace. But he believes his theory. I believe. Oh, Lord, help my unbelief. That is, help me to believe or help me to unbelieve. Who helps to believe? Egomen. Who to unbelieve? Other chap. You are the only contributor to Dana who asks for pieces of silver. Then I don't know about the next number. Fred Ryan wants space for an article on economics. Fried Ryan. Two pieces of silver he lent me. Tied you over. Economics. For a guinea, Stephen said, you can publish this interview. Buck Mulligan stood up from his laughing, scribbling, laughing, and then gravely said, honeying malice, I called upon the bard Kinch at his summer residence in Upper Mecklenburg Street and found him deep in the study of the summer contragentiles in the company of two gonorrhea ladies, fresh Nelly and Rosalie, the coal-key whore. He broke away. Come, Kinch. Come, wandering Angus of the birds. Come, Kinch. You have eaten all we left. Aye, I will serve you your orts and offals. Stephen rose. Life is many days. This will end. We shall see you tonight, John Eglinton said. North Rami Moore says Malachy Mulligan must be there. Buck Mulligan flaunted his slip and Panama. Monsieur Moore, he said, lecturer on French letters to the youth of Ireland. I'll be there. Come, Kinch, the bards must drink. Can you walk straight? Laughing he... Swill till eleven. Irish night's entertainment. Lubber. Stephen followed a lubber. One day in the National Library we had a discussion. Shakes. After his lubbed back I followed. I gall his kibe. Stephen, greeting, then all a mort, followed a lubber, jester, a well-kempt head, new barbered, out of the vaulted cell into a shattering daylight of no thoughts. What have I learned of them, of me? Walk like Haynes now. The Constant Reader's Room. In the reader's book, Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell, perhaps his polysyllables. Item, was Hamlet mad? The Quakers paid godlily with a priestine in book talk. Oh, please do, sir. I shall be most pleased. Amused, Buck Mulligan mused in pleasant murmur with himself, self-nodding. A pleased bottom. The turnstile. Is that... Blue ribbon hat, idly writing... What 
looked. The curving balustrade. Smooth sliding Mincius. Puck Mulligan, Panama helmeted, went step by step, iambing, trolling. John Eglinton, my Joe, John, why won't you wed a wife? He sputtered to the air. Oh, the chinless Chinaman, Chin Chon Eglinton. We went over to their play box, Haynes and I, the plumber's hall. Our players are creating a new art for Europe, like the Greeks or Monsieur Metternich. Abbey Theatre. I smell the public sweat of monks. He spat blank. Forgot? Any more than he forgot the whipping lousy Lucy gave him, and left the femme de trente ans. And why no other children born, and his first child a girl? Afterward, go back. The door recluse still there, he has his cake, and the deuce youngling, minion of pleasure, Fido's toyable fair hair. Uh, I just, um, wanted... I forgot. He... Longworth and Bacurdy Atkinson were there. Puck Mulligan footed featly, trilling. I hardly hear the pearl you cry or a tommy talk as I pass one by before my thoughts begin to run on F. McCurdy Atkinson, the same that had the wooden leg and that filibustering filly bag that never dared to slake his drouth, McGee that had the chinless mouth, being afraid to marry on earth, they masturbated for all they were worth. Jest on, know thyself. Halted below me, a quizzer looks at me. I halt. Mournful mummer, Buck Mulligan moaned. Singh has left off wearing black to be like nature. Only crows, priests, and English coal are black. A laugh tripped over his lips. Longworth is awfully sick, he said. After what you wrote about that old hate Gregory. Oh, you inquisitional drunken Jew Jesuit. She gets you a job on the paper and then you go and slate her drivel to Jesus. Couldn't you do the eights, Touch? He went on and down, mopping, chanting with waving graceful arms. The most beautiful book that has come out of our country in my time. One thinks of Homer. He stopped at the stairfoot. I have conceived a play for the mummers, he said solemnly. The pillared Moorish hall, shadows entwined. Gone the nine men's morris with caps of indices. In sweetly varying voices, Buck Mulligan read his tablet. Every man his own wife, or a honeymoon in the hand, a national immorality in three orgasms, by Bollocky Mulligan. He turned a happy patch's smirk to Stephen, staying. The disguise, I fear, is thin. But listen. He read Mark Cattle. Characters. Toby Tostoff, a ruined pole. Crab, a bushranger. Medical Dick and Medical Davy, two birds with one stone. Mother Grogan, a water carrier. Fresh Nelly and Rosalie, the coal key whore. He laughed, lolling a to-and-fro head, walking on, followed by Stephen, and mirthfully he told the shadows, souls of men. Oh, the night in the Camden Hall when the daughters of Aaron had to lift their skirts to step over you as you lay in your mulberry-coloured, multicoloured, multitudinous vomit. The most innocent son of Aaron, Stephen said, for whom they ever lifted them. About to pass through the doorway... Feeling one behind, he stood aside. Part. The moment is now. Where then? If Socrates leave his house today, if Judas go forth tonight, why? That lies in space which I in time must come to ineluctably. My will, his will that fronts me, sees between. A man passed out between them, bowing, greeting. Good day again, Buck Mulligan said. 
a portico. Here I watched the birds for augury. Angus of the birds, they go, they come. Last night I flew, easily flew. Men wondered, street of harlots after. A cream fruit melon he held to me. In, you will see. A wandering Jew, Buck Mulligan whispered with clown's awe. Did you see his eye? He looked upon you to lust after you. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Oh, Kitch, thou art in peril. Get thee a breech pad. Manor of Oxenford. Day, wheelbarrow sun over arch of bridge. A dark back went before them. Step of a pard, down, out by the gateway, under portcullis barbs. They followed. Offend me still. Speak on. Kind air defined the coins of houses in Kildare Street. No birds. Frail from the housetops, two plumes of smoke ascended, pluming, and in a flaw of softness softly were blown. Cease to strive. Peace of the druid priests of Cymbeline. Hierophantic. From wide earth and altar. Lord, we the gods, and let our crooked smokes climb to their nostrils from our blessed altars.